In the name of Allah, the most gracious, the ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to the Voice of Islam Radio, where you are listening to the art of the Islamic world. My name is Shahzan Baig, and I'm the presenter for today. With me, I have Rizwan Baig, an artist and also the presenter for today, and we are delighted to introduce and have with us the great David Cranswick, who is a great artist, painter and scholar. David Cranswick received his MA degree from the Royal Academy of Arts in 1981, and he also acquired a PhD from the Princess School of Traditional Arts in 1999, under Keith Critchlow, the great artist. He is a great scholar of the study of pigments, the study of painting, and the spirituality that is behind each and every stroke that we see in every painting and every piece of art. It's a pleasure to have you today. Mm, thank you very much. First of all, David, um, I would like to ask that as an artist, the art as a definition, as a form of terminology, is very difficult to decipher. In a linguistic form, it's very subjective mm -hmm. and it's perpetually different as we go across from different artists. So how would you, as an artist and a scholar, define art? Gosh, that is, yeah, as you say, it's a very difficult thing to explain. And it should be difficult because art isn't something that we just manufacture. Art is a manifestation of the divine. Yeah. So if we can if we can explain it, then somewhere we've got it wrong. It's going to get manufactured. It'll get reproduced and mass produced and 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 exploited and everything. So really, it has to remain a mystery what it really is. Um, but at the same time, it's important to know what it is because then you're you run the risk of going completely off course and and calling this art and that art, which is what's happening today. People do something ridiculous and call it art, you know, and they get away with it. So it's really it's a good question. What is art, you know? Um, so really, art art is the if you like the manifestation of the mystery that resides within everything. You know, and and when we talk about creating art, we are bringing that mystery, which is timeless. Um, it's infinite. It has no time, no space. Bringing that into the world of time and space, but and and through bringing into the world of time and space, we're embodying and reflecting that mystery that lies within. So that to me is art. It's beauty. Beauty. Art is all about beauty, and 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 the the the, the miracle of how. The, and the processes by which this mystery can be manifested, if you like, or reflected into the, into matter. It's extraordinary. That's extremely profound. And as an artist yourself, when was this primordial genesis of the study of art and the understanding of art? Where would you say your career started? Um, well, my love for that and my, my interest in it or my, my sense of connection with it um, I believe was there from birth. I really do, because my, my er, earliest memories are all to do with, not directly with painting as such, but, but recognizing or, or sensing a profound, um, deeper reality that lies within the physical reality that we're, we're living in. For me, there, there was always, when I used to go and sit with nature as a child in Australia, for instance, for me, the, nature itself was embodying something so profound and I, and I and I was I was looking for it, wanting it. I couldn't. Nobody was talking about it at all. Um, but I, you know, I always believed it is there. But there was nobody, nobody there to say, you know, to guide me or whatever. Like there, maybe in some societies you get someone there to explain exactly what you're, what it is you're seeking. Um, so it was left, you know, it was left. But it was there as a longing that was there always throughout my whole career everywhere it was constantly there that search for that and recognition of the of the, of, of the mystery of that divine reality that's amazing um you've reminded me of the great story and the beginning of maulana rumi and yeah. the way he started his great magnum opus the masnavi in mm. which he talks about the reed being separated from the reed bed and always longing to yeah. come back to its origin, which is the reed bed. Yeah. And we could actually define that as human beings longing to go back to that origin. Yeah. And even the expression of that is a form of art. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's a lo- beautiful way to put it. That that really is the purpose of art. That is why we create. It's a, it's it's a, it's a, it's an expression of our longing to return to that and to be reconnected with that so that then our life becomes a reflection of that and a celebration of that instead of living in this dualistic world that we tend to live in. It is amazing. And in terms of the the formal study of art, mm. Where was the start of that formal journey? Um, the start, gosh, I mean, I've, I've had many years of art training, and the first seven years were um, at, in, at conventional art school. I went to Kingston Polytechnic for my foundation, and then Camberwell I went to for my, 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 um, my BA degree, and then I did my MA at the Royal Academy. And in all those all those years of art school, it was. I, I, I can't say I learned. I got any direct inspiration there of how this happens technically through art, but I it reinforced this frustration that it's not there. So that that was important. Frustration is very important, you know, because it it deepens. It, it either it, you either give up, or it deepens the longing, you know. So it's kind yes. of like a test. I would like to ask you because uh, in your previous interviews you mentioned about um, your great master mm. uh, Keith Krischler yeah he's a great artist great yep. geometrist yep. great scholar mm. yeah so what's your thinking about meeting with him and getting experience of knowledge mm. um, about your future yep. um, thinking about the colors and everything yeah well I mean he was he was the great inspiration behind behind all of those aspects, and really, he was the first one to really um, wake me up to what is traditional art, you know. Because I, I met Keith through my 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 um, my painting teacher Cecil Collins. Um, I, I, yes. I I was forced to go to, under the study under this teacher. We may talk about that a bit later, but I had no choice, and so I surrendered myself to Cecil for for the duration of the the rest of his life. Um, and through Cecil, I met Keith spontaneously. He, he was there on the other side of the door as we opened the door to go for lunch. There was Keith. So we had a, a, a momentary sort of an hour together. And afterwards, Cecil said to me, he said, um, he said, uh, Keith Critchlow will be an important influence later in your life. Now, I had no idea what he meant by that. I didn't know at the time that Keith Critchlow was running a department at the Royal College of Art called Visual Islamics and Traditional Art. I just thought, OK, well, that's interesting. Let's see. Anyway, um, and then and then finally I was I was invited to come and teach there in, at his department, not knowing it was his department, but got a phone call, can you come and give a workshop at the Royal College um, to the students? And, and that led me on to then being invited to do a PhD as well. Um, by that time, it was no longer the Royal College, it was the Prince's School of Traditional Arts. Um, and in my first term of starting the PhD, um, it was my first time I'd really been in that department for any real length of time. The, previously, it was only five-day workshops, and it was mostly about what I was teaching. So now I was really... Um, in, in And, and you know, it's a school of traditional arts, so... Um, up until then, I had a sort of a glossy, superficial idea of what traditional meant. And I thought it was just sort of, you know, participating in, in, in something that was historic. Um, and I didn't realize the deeper meaning behind traditional. You know, it's very, very profound when we talk about traditional. It is not about an historic period that we're just emulating. It is It is something far, far more than that. So in my first term um, in the department, doing my PhD, um, I I became aware that what I'm doing, because my my, my 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 thesis was that the the materials materials and techniques used in painting in Europe between the 13th and 17th centuries. Right. I wanted to do it over 2,000 years, but Keith said, no, no, you can't. It's got to be kept more concise. You can, you'll can, you never get away with it. It was over such a broad period. So 13th to 17th century, painting materials and techniques in Europe. So I was looking at that, and I was thinking, oh, my God, it's not traditional. What I'm practicing, what I'm researching is not traditional because that period is not a traditional period in Europe any longer. They've left the tradition. And my head, it's like I went into a spin and I, and, and, and almost like a cold sweat. I thought, my God, can I even continue? You know, I'm, I'm, I am, I am a fake. 
I'm doing a PhD in something under the guise of traditional, and what I'm researching and and studying, studying the recipes and the practices of how they painted and built up the paintings and all aspects of that, it's not traditional. So I thought, oh my God, I don't know what to do. I went to Keith um, that at the end of that day, and I said, Keith, um, I've got a, a really big dilemma um, about what I'm doing and whether it even can be called traditional. And um, Keith said, well, you know, let's have a chat tomorrow morning. Come, come to my office in the morning. So that night, I had a dream. Wow. One of those dreams. And um, in the dream, it, it was not even a dream, really. It was too quick for a dream. In the dream, um, suddenly there in front of me was... Now, I always, whenever I say this to people, they, they because of my pronunciation, they don't quite know who I'm talking about, but Kidr. Kidr? Do we know? Yeah, the, is that the pronunciation right? Kidr? He's like the green, they call him the green man. He's oh, Khizr. Okay, Hizer. okay, yes. okay, yeah. And he lives, he's, he's in a timeless Absolutely. world. He, he manifests exactly. at different times. So he was there in front of me, and he said, I will give you tradition. Wow. And that was it. And so I woke up, and I thought, wow, I don't need to worry. He will give me tradition. So mm. it will come. And um, so in the morning, <laughs> I came. Wow, <laughs> I arrived at the school the next day, <laughs> and I told Keith I had this dream. And and, and I was told, told by, by, by um, pronounce it again? Khizr. Exactly. Um, that he will give me tradition himself. So <laughs> Keith was very happy. <laughs> and all, but that, that was that. That that yeah, I mean that was that was extraordinary because I really was in a dilemma, and and then working studying under Keith in that department, more and more, I, and and continually now to this day, I feel I'm going deeper and deeper into the mystery of what really is meant by traditional, because it is nothing to do with outer form. Outer form is 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 an aspect of it, but it's not. You can be doing something outwardly that looks extremely traditional. But there's nothing traditional in it because you're doing it with the wrong motivation, the wrong heart, the wrong understanding. So the tradition lies in the whole different levels of being within which you are practicing that outer form. That's where the tradition. And how that is connected with your inner abilities and your outer ability? Would you like to explain that? When we talk about my inner abilities, I mean, outwardly, as an artist, one perfects one's self through, if you like, refining oneself so that one can become an instrument of, of art, of beauty, of bringing this mystery into being. And in order to, to refine oneself and develop oneself, like as a musical instrument, yes. in order to convey the, the correct sound, one has to go through all sorts of inner spiritual trainings to do with purification, to do with, 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 with surrender, um, with with the ego not 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 becoming the basis of everything, but uh, allowing the ego to to be subjugated, so that you're 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 working more with the heart than the head. My 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 Sufi teachers always said you've got to hammer the head down into the heart, you know. So so the outer practices, if you like, the discipline the d discipline involved in understanding learning techniques and all the skills involved in that, they're all outer practices whereby we are made ready to be able to receive that, to transmit that, to receive that, okay? But the inner really is, I mean, if you say that there is my inner, but there isn't really my inner, there is the inner, which is vast and everywhere and does not belong to me. It is Wonderful, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Regarding this, um, I think one thing that is very important is that every day uh, for an individual molds them to what they are in the present day. And uh, one extremely amazing experience you had was traveling to Burma and um, your interactions with Buddhism. Yeah. Um, it would be amazing if you could share with us your experiences during that period of time. Gosh. <laughs> okay, that started, my interest in Buddhism started in my very early 20s. It actually started not from Buddhism. It started from looking at a, I think I was about 20 years old or 21, and I was in my parents' house in their kitchen, and I was going through a National Geographic magazine looking at the pictures, and there was this face of a yogi. He was a, he was a Hindu ascetic, and he'd been living in the, in the forest. 
and the, it just I didn't read need to read anything about him. I just saw his face and I thought, my God, that's what I'm looking for. There was something in his face, in his eyes, and I knew that that's what I've been searching for. You know, when he talked about myself when I was a little child and I knew there was something there, but what it is and how to uh, to participate, no idea. When I saw that face, I realized, my God, that's it. That's what I want. Whatever he yes. has experienced, that knowledge, that's what I want. So that, and I remember I showed my father, who's a, a, a doctor, a GP, and I said, Dad, I said, look at this picture. Doesn't it make you question everything until now you've, you've been brought up to understand and believe in? Doesn't that just turn everything into turmoil? And he looked at it and he said, no. Nope. So for him, it didn't. But for me, it turned my world upside down. And then that, and so I became interested in Eastern religions because Christianity for me was not doing it. I've been forced to go to church at boarding school and things for many years. And it was just dogma, rep repetition of a dogma. And it was no inner spiritual guidance or training or anything. So the, for me, that was quite frustrating. So um, I'm not saying there isn't it there in Christianity, but the way it was being taught to me at boarding school, it was certainly not there at all. Um, so I, I, I couldn't find it in Christianity, but I knew in the East it was being practiced and people were genuinely living a deeply profound spiritual life. So my brother had recently gone out to India to study under Bede Griffiths, the um, Christian monk out there who had set up an ashram. And um, and he was and he wrote back. My brother wrote back um, and was talking about Buddhism because B. Griffiths was also very interested in Buddhism. And so I wrote back a letter saying, "Tell me how do how do you meditate in in Buddhism? What what is meditation? What is it?" And so he told me he told me very briefly what it is. So um, I remember I was lying in bed contemplating what my brother had said, which is something very simple, just to sort of like watch your breath and be. Be, keep your mind still and just watch the breath. So I thought, okay. So I was lying in bed that night and, and practicing it. And it's the first time I'd ever practiced meditation of any sort. And um, I was lying there and then something stood up in me. It was extraordinary. It's like I was still physically, I was lying flat on the bed, but it felt like my whole body just sat completely upright and it felt like almost there was like almost like cogs moving me there was almost like this winding thing as my body was just forced to sit up erect and that was it it was just that experience of sitting up when I was lying down and I knew something had happened at that moment something had happened it was like a, a doorway into something that I knew nothing about, but I wanted. So that was my beginnings of interest into Buddhism. After that, I thought, right, I've got to find a teacher. So then I started finding teachers, and that eventually, after many Buddhist retreats, 10-day silent retreats, eventually in England and in, in India, that eventually led me to Burma, um, which was like the center where the, 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 the teachers who were teaching, they'd all trained at, in Rangoon. That's absolutely amazing. And uh, one thing, David, that you mm. um, spoke about previously was the ego and mm. the physical and metaphysical aspect of your arts. What does mm. the role of the ego play in your practice of the art and understanding of the art? Um, see, ego, art, art is today completely egocentric. In other words, the ego is at the centre of, of our experience. So when the people are doing a painting, people you always use the word self-expression, you know. I mean, the, the whole idea, yes. self-expression, I'm expressing myself, you're putting the ego at the center of the universe, at the center of yourself. I mean, it's, it's, it's the antithesis of what art is all about. It's about selfless expression mm -hmm. or expression of the divine. Um, so the, e the purpose of the ego, if, if we use it skillfully, it's very valuable. You know, we, we need the ego to help us in certain ways, but if the ego is controlling us, we're in big trouble, and mostly we're controlled by the ego. So the thing is to, it comes back to bringing the, the head down into the heart. Um, in that process, the ego learns to surrender. And once the ego learns to surrender, then it's in its rightful place, and then it can become a servant, which is what it should be. So, you know, the ego the ego has to serve. If it if it's becomes a dictator, I mean, we have so many... <laughs> dictators around at the moment who are guided by their egos, driven by their egos, you know, so, um, and it's not about service at all. So we need to, we need to 
put the ego, the ego needs to be in its rightful place as a servant. And then, then it's beautiful. Then we're driven by wisdom, which is the, the heart. Then wisdom is, is, the, is the, 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 the center of all outward action. But one question that arises is that how can one shackle the ego into a servant? <laughs> Great difficulty. Um, by, this is where the whole training, the apprenticeship training comes into play. If you go to art school, for instance, there is no way your ego is going to develop, you know, become bigger and bigger. Whereas in the, 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 the whole purpose of the apprenticeship system of training is very much to do with the ego being put in its rightful place. So then you will end up doing doing very mundane things. For as long as the ego is there and showing, I want to be this, I want to be better than you, and I, I want to achieve this, as long as you're not in a place of surrender, then the, the master will continually get you to do mundane things and repeat it and repeat it. And you think, why the hell should I repeat it? I've done it now 500 times, and it's it's still it, it's perfect. I can't do anything wrong with it. And you just get driven crazy. Eventually, that that, that is a breaking down of the ego. You know, gradually the ego by itself will start to let go and something else will start to emerge out of that. You can't just literally say, right, I'm going to break down my ego. It takes it takes a lot of skillful training by a master to help you to do that, to do the right exercises and to see what's happening inside of you. Very difficult to do it by yourself. It's time for a short break, after which we will discuss and carry on our conversation that you're having. Please join us straight after this break. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings be upon you. The Holy Quran states Allah is the light of the heavens and the earth. Anur is that being through whose light a physically blind person sees and a person who has gone astray finds guidance. It is that being who is apparent and through whom all things are manifested. His being is apparent in himself and makes things evident for others as well. The true light is God, which can be perceived in everything by those with insight. However, one who is devoid of spiritual sight cannot see it. A believer is firm on the belief that the universe that can be observed, as well as the universe that cannot be observed, is created by God. In order to give an understanding of this light, God sends His chosen people who spread the nur, which comes down from the heavens throughout the world. The promised Messiah, on whom be peace, writes, that light of high degree that was bestowed on perfect man was not in angels, was not in the stars, was not in the moon was not in the sun, was not in the oceans or the rivers, was not in rubies or emeralds, or sapphires or pearls. In short, it was not in any earthly or heavenly object. It was only in perfect man, whose highest and loftiest and most perfect example was our Lord and Master, the Chief of the Prophets, the Chief of all living ones, Muhammad, the Chosen One. Peace and blessings of Allah be on him. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be on him, set the most excellent example and the highest standard of nur which was established as a reflection of the light of God and which will continue till the day of judgment. The nur he received was conveyed to his companions 
and established excellent morals amongst them. So much so that he likened them to the stars. After the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be on him, the reflection of God's light was the promised Messiah on whom be peace. This was due to complete subordination of his master. Not only did God fill the promised Messiah on whom be peace with nur that was sent down more than 1,400 years ago, he also granted him the station to spread this nur. The promised Messiah on whom be peace wrote that no one knew him and God compelled him out of his solitude and told him that he would bestow upon him honor and make him renowned all over the world. It is a way of God that when he adorns someone with nur, he manifests it to the world. After all, when the worldly light has a capacity to spread, how can the light of God stay hidden? Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the art of the Islamic world. Before the break, we're having a fascinating discussion with the great artist David Cranswick. In this segment, we'll carry on the conversation. David, regarding the process of the art and as the practice of the art, how do you bring about incorporating and introducing the concept of beyond? Whoosh, gosh, <laughs> you do ask the, um, the most difficult questions, but all the, the really interesting and profound questions are difficult questions, of course, so I'm glad they're not simple questions. <laughs> and we can really get, we can really chew the bone, as it were, instead of just talking about the, the outer aspects. So for me, um, firstly, um, how, do, how, does one bring, how does one convey, reflect, into, say, the simple drawing of a flower, how does one embody the mystery that lies behind that into, into the flower? You know, for me, that is the real nature of the flower. You know, like I was talking with the, with the, um, the driver on the way up, was talking about, for me, a portrait isn't just about the human face. The, a portrait is a doorway into the, the human soul that you reach through understanding the human face but it is not about the face if it's about the face then it's a waste of time and i will give up painting today you know but it is it is about it opens a doorway and the same with drawing a flower somehow you have to find a way to open that doorway so that when you are drawing the flower your your pencil mark your expression of that flower is is a manifestation of that mystery which is within the flower within everything within everything that exists that that profound divine mystery that is the cause of everything to come into being somehow you need to reflect that in a flower in the human face in a in a in a in a, in a painting about any subject whatever it might be um subjective or, or ab abstract whatever it might be it somehow has to convey that so how does one one do that now in in the east they have a word um a word Wu Wu Wei Wu Wei, W U and then W E I Wu Wei, which means doing without doing. Okay, for it. So so that doing without doing. You see, creativity doesn't come out of doing; it comes out of being. When when we're really involved in what we are doing, we enter a place of being. It may it starts with doing. When you're when you're training, there's a lot of doing. But at a certain point in your training and at a certain point in your practice, what you are doing, uh, see, doing involves duality. I am trying to do this. But at a certain point in your practice, when, if you like, you, the pencil mark is perfectly attuned to your heart, then the pencil mark becomes an expression of your heart. You know, the heart being the doorway into the universal. And at that point, you are not doing. You are not doing. And in, in, in real creativity, there is no doing. It is the, 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 the drawing is a pure expression of being. And so it's doing without doing. Wow. Mm. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. It's very interesting. And it really, it really lies at the heart of, of all creative practice. You know, I believe it's the same with dance, with poetry, with sculpture. With, you know, it reminds me of what Michelangelo once said. 
um, again, it sort of line it links into this this Wu Wu way doing without doing. He said, as an as a as an artist as a sculptor, he said the form already exists within the rock, and all he is doing as a sculptor is chipping away that that which is hiding the the real beauty that is already there within. You know, so again, that comes come that links in with with Wu way doing without doing. All I'm doing is revealing that which is hidden. And it's the same with painting. When I'm doing a painting, okay, I'm applying paint to the surface of the canvas, say, but on another level, I am, I am gradually through, through the lifting the veils that are hiding the divine reality that lies within. So for me, when I'm doing a painting, let's say I'm doing a portrait, I do a portrait with the understanding that that face is already there. It already exists since the beginning of time, not just since yesterday. It is a timeless face that has existed since the beginning of time um, within that canvas, within that ground. And my the, 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 the technique, and this is why technique is so important, the technique is a skillful means by which that which is hidden can be revealed. So everything in, in creativity is to do with revelation, has nothing to do with, with self-expression, which means imposing something into the surface. It's actually a process of, of, of lifting the layers and revealing the beauty, the timeless that has always been there. This is amazing. But one question arises, many of our dear listeners will be extremely inspired by your process and by your actions and your practice. Yeah. But many of them may not have access to the institutionalized forms of studying art. But would yeah. you say the institutions are a hindrance to the channeling of the divine when it comes to art? Or is it a form of the building process to the final product? Gosh, well, certainly the institutions that I've been to, apart from the Princess School of Traditional Arts, um, most of the institutions will certainly be a hindrance. You know, I've seen so many people give up out of going to art school, you know, because it really is a hindrance. Um, it, it takes you constantly. It is if, even if you mention the word beauty now at art school, let alone some such words as tradition or whatever. But beauty, um, you'll you'll get thrown out or laughed out of the room. You know, it, it doesn't exist. They're not interested in. It. Um, so I think re really, um, I mean, the art comes from within. Okay, but you need to develop the skills in order to connect because the skills are about firstly developing techniques. So, you, you know, in other words, a language through which you can then bring into being the you know whatever it is, the colors, the forms that you are working with. You can you have enough skillful means to articulate the rhythms, the colors, the drawing, everything, and at the same time, technique is a form of um, surrender. Um, in the real technique, there is, as I've said, there's no room for ego in technique. So technique is a honing down of the ego, refining the ego becomes less and less and less, and gradually it becomes this place of, of service. So technique is twofold. It's about developing skill, you know, developing the language through which you're going to work, whatever medium it may be, painting, music, whatever, dance, perfecting that technique, but then using that technique as a means um, and, and a process by which you completely surrender and then something else can come through. For as long as you're not surrendered, you know, you, you're, you've closed that door and anything else to come through. Somewhere at the back of all that of not surrendering is I want to be the one that comes through, not that with a capital T. You know? So <laughs> surrender is crucial. Otherwise, you will become a great technician. People say, that's extraordinary, the detail, everything. You know, and you get this absurd thing that people say sometimes. It looks just like a photograph, as if that's a compliment. You know, yes. Technically, okay, but there's nothing else there, nothing else there. And then technique is a waste of time. If technique stops at technique, it's a complete waste of there's time. There's no spirit in it. No spirit in it at all. Yes. It's, it's lifeless. But then, uh, David, can mm. an artist or even irregular individual yeah. when they observe two pieces of art yeah. one being the one that is egocentric mm. the one that where the artist has not surrendered yeah. and we have another where the artist has surrendered completely to yeah. the divine yeah. and completely rid themselves of yeah. the ego mm. is that noticeable in the art in a physical form or only in a metaphysical form um it's an interesting question because yeah because it's it's something put it this way the the these 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 um these areas are something the head there are certain things the head is incapable of understanding 
Okay, so if, for as long as we're trying to understand it intellectually or rationally, it is outside the, the realm of rational thinking, rational thought, because rational thought is 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 conditional, you know, and it's 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 um uh it it it's it, it's what's the word? it's it's formulated, so in art we have to enter the unconditional, the unformulated, the unprogrammed. And then we're in a space of not knowing, of completely not knowing. In that space, there is real knowing, not knowing with the, with the conceptual mind, but knowing with the heart. So these things really, yeah, the, the, the head cannot understand it. But at the same time, when we're looking at something, two paintings, one, one that is, is, is profoundly spiritual and the other one is amazingly technical, there will be a feeling in the body. Put it that way. We will feel, and you should listen with the heart. When you're looking at a subject, don't just look with your eyes. Feel it with your heart, with your whole being, really. Feel it in your body. What does it feel like um, inwardly? That's the better way of measuring. I remember there's a um, Bernard Leach, the potter, who brought um, a great potter in the early part of the 20th century. He went out to Japan, studied traditional pottery in his early years, and he was there for many years, um, and brought the, not just the technique but the philosophy of pottery from Japan to the West. He was an extraordinary potter. I remember once in reading his book, Beyond East and West, uh, a wonderful biography of his life. And later in his life, in his 70s or so, he was invited back. He was, he was, the, the, the Japanese potters saw him then as a real master potter. And he was invited back with a, to with, to meet a, a group of master potters where they're having a they're having a big exhibition and I think it was a lot of Ming pottery there for the Ming dynasty, and they passed they brought out a pot for him to hold, and um, this, is, this is an answer to your question they brought out a pot for him to hold, um, and it was a great honour to hold this extraordinary pot, and then they they, they asked him what he what, what were his thoughts about the pot. And he immediately gave a complimentary answer to the beauty of the pot. And then afterwards, one of them said, you know, we were quite surprised how quickly you responded to our question because we would normally wait for the pot to speak to us and then we'd tell you what we think of the pot with the pot's words, not our words, but what the pot is saying to us. Wow. And that takes, that takes time, you know, to feel it, to actually feel it and hear it. Yeah. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Mm. As you know, my background is as a Islamic calligrapher, mm, yeah. and in it's it's it was being praised in a Western world as well about Islamic calligraphy. And uh, once the Pablo Picasso was being asked about Islamic calligraphy, mm. and he said, "Where the lines of my art finish, Islamic calligraphy start from that point." Wow. And as you know, the mediums yeah. in Islamic uh, calligraphy is. Mm using the ink, which is the traditional ink. And you are a great, I think, only one actually in whole UK who crea create these traditional inks. Mm. So please talk about your relation about, um, about ink, ink and yeah. how the traditional ink is created yeah. and what is the background of it. Mm. Okay, gosh. Well, firstly, whenever I hold a pen, yes. I'm always brought into the presence of, I feel I'm in the presence of something that is so profound, you know, when I'm hold, just holding a pen, not not uh, even a calligraphic pen, just a, like this morning I was holding a fountain pen. I do love my pens. Yes. I do collect pens. Wow, <laughs> so I was holding the fountain pen. And I was, again, you know, without even, I was trying to write down a dream, but I ended up contemplating the, 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 the pen and the ink and how profound it is because the ink, the ink, contains all possibilities you know it, it, it's like the um, in the east they talk about the yin and the yang the yin the yin is the the feminine principle it's the wisdom it's a container that holds everything it embodies everything but it is unformed has no time no space it is a center of creativity and then the the yang is the activating masculine energy which brings that mystery into being into the world of time and space so the ink is like the the the, the divine word that is the that is there like i think in the in the in the what is it john the baptist he said in the beginning was the word you know the whole universe every all manifestation is created out of the word it is, it is the ink the ink embodies that is symbolic of that divine word it contains all 
possibilities. So when we're writing with the ink, what are we doing? We are actually working with this primal, it's like prima materia, this primal energy. We are working with that to articulate the voice of that mystery that resides within everything. You know, it is so profound. And that's why I, I, I think, you know, people should really think about what ink they're working with, you know, because ink, we don't even know about inks anymore. Ink is just, oh, it's that black stuff in a bottle. What is it? I don't know, you know. <laughs> but it's very profound. The word ink itself comes from incaustum, to burn, okay? So it actually, ink should really burn. I, I believe that comes from, you know, any real knowledge has to be burnt into your heart. It doesn't just sit on the surface, otherwise it'll it'll go away again. But if it burns into your heart, it, it's, it's timeless. It'll be there forever. So it's like the Word of God has to be burnt into the heart. Um, so the ink, the ink, the traditional ink, one of the oldest inks, is made from the oak gall. There's these little round yes. oak galls that grow on oak trees. Wow. And they're created out of a wasp. From the wasp, the sting of a wasp stings the branch of the tree. That creates a reaction. And in, in the sting, in the stinging process, by the way, it has laid the, its seed into the center of that sting. The tree reacts and forms gradually this little ball, which grows eventually to the size of a large marble. And then eventually the wasp inside, the larvae, it grows and grows, turns into a wasp, and then eats its way out of this oak gall. And you'll see a little hole in the side of it to show that the ink is, the, the, the wasp is gone. And then the artists come along and collect the oak galls put them into a mortar and pestle, break them, grind them down to a to small particles, and then put them into a, a, a pot with water and bring it to the boil and simmer it for about an hour um, in the boiling water. And, um, and then into that water, which looks at this stage, it doesn't look like ink at all. It looks like a, a sort of a muddy tea color, uh, sort of it's a brown. Um, and then you can either throw into it rusty nails. Rusty nails are more valuable than the, than, than the silvery nails, you know. We should always be looking for the rusty nails. In the shops, they always sell the silvery nails, but really, if they sold rusty nails, they'd be double the price. But instead, people throw them away. <laughs> so you take a handful of rusty nails, put them into the pot, and then gradually, over a period of about half an hour to an hour, it, this brown goes into a beautiful black. Um, you can do it more quickly if you take iron sulfate, the ferrous sulfate, put a, a, a good-sized um, tablespoon into, into a liter of this, this, what looks like tea, and it'll go black instantly. And then that, that is ink. And actually, it, is, it, it actually follows the true meaning of ink. As I said, it means incaustum to burn, because the other inks don't actually burn. They sit more on the surface. Mm -hmm. But the ochral ink actually bites into the paper or into the vellum um, and, and is much more permanent. It's amazing. You mentioned the ochral and mm. the center of the And everything in the world has the center. Um, could you expand on the center and its impact on your art? And you understand. And talk about geometry yeah. as well, because geometry. geometry have the center as well. Well, exactly. The center. Gosh, the center. I love the center. <laughs> we all love the center. It's, uh, it, it's, out of, it's that which from everything comes. So um, let me first briefly talk about black elk. Um, black elk, the American Indian from the Sioux, I believe from the Sioux tribe. And he lived, I think he died in about 1950s or so on. So he lived in the 19th century and through into the middle of the the 20th century um, and when he was about um, eight or nine years old he was he was living with the tribes and and in the different seasons they would go pass from one area of of their hunting grounds to another and they were in a process of migration and little black elk um, who was the son of the the chief of that tribe he suddenly fell ill and he went into a coma um, and so they they stopped, put up a teepee, and they brought the medicine man, and they were they were smudging, I mean, using herbal um, burning herbs with, for the smoke to try and revive him and things. Um, meanwhile, little black elk had been taken off by his ancestors on horseback. He he was in a vi kind of a vision, but it's, I mean he was there, not just imaginary. He was riding off with his ancestors into the mountains, and for seven days. He was being trained um, for the future. 
because he was going to be the leader of that tribe and he needed to be told everything what's happening, not just in his tribe, but for the whole Indian nations. Um, and on the and so there's all these that you can read the story of, of Black Elk. It's a fascinating story. Uh, so I can't go through all everything he was taught then. But there's this thing about the Santa, because on the last day they sent him off um, and he rode off on his own and he found himself on the top of a mountain. And he realized in that moment that he was at the center of the universe. And simultaneously, he realized that that center is everywhere. So that center has neither time nor space, but it is within everything. Um, and that comes to the, uh, that brings us back to the center of the circle and geometry, why geometry is so, such a profound sacred activity, because it, it is an embodiment of that whole mystery. Because when you drop the vertical axis of the compass down onto the paper... Um, it creates that little point, where, which is the center. Yes. Okay. Yes. At that time, um, and, and that, that vertical axis is the logos. It's the, it's the heavenly, the divine connection of heaven to earth. It's the logos. Um, when you open up the compass, then you have duality. So at the first, there is no duality. There's just oneness. You then open it up, and you have time and space. You have duality. So that already is a symbol. The compass itself is a symbol of the whole of creation. Unity and bringing, bringing the mystery of that which is timeless into time and space. And then you create the circle, um, which is the time and the space of the world, the universe. And then out of the circle, you, bring, you develop all the, evolve all the other uh, forms of sacred geometry. The, the, the triangle, the square, the, the, the um, hexagon, the octagon, the pentagon, all of those aspects... Are, are manifested um, from that center. Now, if you start to create patterns and designs which have no center, then you are out of you're out of touch with your center. With that center, it's not embodying anything. Then it becomes absurd. Mm. You know, there is no center. There's no there is no God within it. It is just ideas and concepts bouncing around, reacting to this and reacting to that. It is just. It's, it has no meaning at all. So everything in sacred geometry is born out of that center and pays homage to the mystery of that center. This is fascinating me because, you know, if you're creating a circle, yeah. you start from one point and yeah. end up to the same point yeah. as well. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. two of the attributes in our uh, Islamic world of yeah. God is... He's awal and akhir. He's mm. the first and he's the last. Yeah. And circle actually... Um, combine those attributes into it as well. Yeah, exactly. And in the Quran, um, the Holy Book of Islam, when these two attributes are mentioned, they're also mentioned with two other attributes. And what's fascinating is it comes under the chapter called the pen. Mm. And in that, um, God says, that he is the first and he is the last Mm. and he is the manifest and he is the hidden. Mm. And we can link this to the circle yep. with it having the first and the yep. last. Yep. And in geometry, we see that we have apparent and manifest yep. patterns. Yep. But behind, there's the hidden construction yep. of yep. the intersections that actually make those manifest yep. shapes. Yeah, yeah, beautifully put. Yeah, yes. absolutely. It's fascinating how it all ties in. You know, yes. I mean, that that's what the perennial philosophy is about. It's about understanding the the the, 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 the different philosophies traditional philosophies that underlie all the great traditions and how outwardly they are expressed differently, but they're all inwardly saying the same thing, same thing. Exactly. In, in essence, in essence. Um, it, you know, sometimes they get confused by the dogmas that develop around them, but that's something else. But in essence, they're about the same thing because, because God is within. You know, you, you call, it, call it whatever it is within. Well, one thing I would like to mention about this yeah. geometrical art is mm. that um, it is very repetitive. Yeah. And might be in every culture, in mm. every religion, we do the same thing all the time. Yeah. And uh, God actually loved mm. the rep- repetitive remembrance yeah. of God. Exactly. And yeah. geometry actually showing yeah. visually yeah. how we can yeah. remember the God repetitively. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It reminds me of what Mahatma Gandhi said. He said, repetitive action leads to meditative state of mind. So that, you know, it is the repetition. Then if you repeat and repeat and repeat with, in, in the right way, with, with the, right, the right devotion, then the repetition becomes a mantra, you know? And, and, and so repetition is is so profound, 
you know, repetition. We tend to, we tend to, you know, people these days say, oh, no, it's so rep- I've, d- I've heard that before. I've done that before. I don't need to do it again. It's the repetition which will take you deeper and deeper, deeper into the different layers of reality. If you don't repeat, forget it. You know, yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's why we <laughs> try to give um, five times yeah. offering our prayers. Yeah. Yeah. To repeat yeah. the same. Yeah. Um, uh, same wording, same yeah. everything. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And just through repetition as well, we see that you mentioned Michelangelo. Mm. With the repetitive uh, the repetitive carving, yeah. it develops the real sculpture. Exactly. And I think yeah. as whenever we do actions in repetition, mm. what mm. actually happens is, is we are the, we are carving our own soul. Yeah. We are slowly carving ourselves into trying yeah. to become the perfect being. Yeah. And what is the perfect being is the one who is actually intermingled with the divine yeah completely that in a sense the repetition is a continual calling to god all the time the calling and calling and calling and at a certain point that he will you know you wait and wait you call and call and eventually he will land so so it it's um oh i was going to say something else too to do with that that idea of repetition going deeper um, can't think of it now. Something, so many ideas come up when we talk about these things. Um, but yeah, the repetition is is very very profound. Uh, and in your own practice of arts, mm. whether it be painting or pigment making, mm. what role does repetition hold in that? Um, okay, let's say in in pigment making and preparing pigments because I make all my pigments from nature. I prepare. I make them from the rocks, the coloured earth, from plants. Um, even in some cases from various insects, and and it's that's all about the repetition. You know, for instance, you take a rock, and then you have to grind that rock down into a fine powder is the first stage. So already within that um, that grinding process, there's a lot of repetition of just bashing the rock down into a fine powder, and then you you transpa- transform that transpose that into a porcelain. Because the first one was a brass mortar and pestle, now it goes into a porcelain mortar and pestle, and you grind the pigment in water, and you're grinding it repeatedly, round and round and round, and gradually in that re- repetitive circu- circulatory process, the pure pigments fall to the bottom, and the dirt starts to arise in the water. So it's all it all everything in creativity is repetition. It has to be, because as I said, repetition is a calling to God. And if you stop calling, nothing's going to happen. You have to continually be calling. (laughs) It's been a great pleasure, David. And it is very unfortunate that I'm having to bring this to an end after such a profound conversation. And um, we've come to the end of this week's episode. Please join us again next time for more insights into the art of the Islamic world. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.